So I have the privilege of uh, getting to interview um, Dr. Lorraine Temming. Uh, she is one of our maternal fetal medicine experts, as well as uh, the director of labor and delivery here at, Car here at Carolina's Medical Center. So thank you, Lorene, for coming and chatting with our team on Get in the Know with uh, your CMO. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good well, to be tell here. Us, it is great to have you here because I know we're all incredibly busy and there are lots of concerns related to uh, pregnant mothers and what's happening in pregnancy related to coronavirus. And well, first tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and, and um, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. So I'm Lorene Temming. I'm actually born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. A so native. people say, you know, there's only 13 of us around, but <laughs> I tend to know all of them. So I um, went to Myers Park High School, go Mustangs, and then went to UNC for undergrad. I worked for four years managing a community health center in Carborough, North Carolina, and then um, did med school at UNC. Actually did my OBGYN rotation here at um, Atrium Health, fell in love with OB and pursued that for residency and ended up doing residency here as well. Then I went to um, St. Louis for fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at WashU and came back uh, to CMC in 2017. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, great to have you back and helping lead the stuff. Dr. Nina Connors, thank you for also coming and joining uh, Dr. Temming and myself to discuss COVID-19 in our pregnant patients. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and your current role here? Well, I'm from Philadelphia, uh -huh. graduated from University of Pennsylvania. Yep. Um, I joined Atrium about five years ago at our Cabarrus location for maternal fetal medicine. Subsequently, I became division chief for MFM here. And uh, as of a few months ago, I've been acting as interim chair. Interim chair, excellent. Um, I mean, this is scary, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a really intense time. I mean, I think an exciting time in some way to see yeah. all of our um, teams kind of come together and work hard on getting prepared uh, for the potential impact of this, but certainly a scary time as well. Well, and, and I know scary is also relative because uh, we're seeing the things that are happening throughout the country. And we're trying to figure out, are we prepared? Have we done all we can to kind of minimize our risk? Because quite honestly, knowing is the best part of trying to prevent, right? Yeah, absolutely. How do you think we're doing here uh, at, at Atrium? I think pretty good. So we've been working for several weeks on kind of preparing you our- said weeks, right? Yeah. Weeks, yeah, yeah. yeah, several weeks yeah. on preparing our labor and delivery unit both here and at the other facilities for the potential of having patients under investigation or patients who were COVID positive. And that has really been an evolving target. What started as like one small document has turned into four <laughs> elaborate documents about how a patient would arrive and triage through our unit and um, do that safely both for the patient and for the healthcare worker and then what it would look like if that same patient um, was in labor or had an obstetric complaint and how we would go through delivery and c-sections and all of those things mm -hmm. so that has involved um, a lot of preparation it's been kind of uh, nice to see the multidisciplinary aspect of that like right, working right. closely with nursing and infection prevention and um, incident command and all these different folks really coming together to work to be prepared. And I think, knock on wood, that we've made some good progress in that regard and that we are pretty prepared. So I think we are doing a lot. 
Um, I know there's we are. A lot that, was a, that was a toss-up question. <laughs> there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that yeah. people don't necessarily see in order to come out with uh, recommendations on how we can protect our patients and protect ourselves. Yeah. And I feel like um, the OBGYN department has really been um, at the forefront of trying to um, implement best practice, combining evidence from places around the country, and also our experience to kind of drive how we should think about getting prepared for COVID. Because even when you think you're prepared, you're you're still maybe a little bit behind. So you always have to try to think about what's coming next and how we can can mitigate those things. So uh, I was talking to Dr. Temming and she mentioned the fact that, you know, some of the publications have just been a few days ago and we've been able to pivot, but we also started preparing several weeks ago. You know, can you give a couple of examples of some sort of preemptive efforts that we put into our facilities, uh, whether inpatient or out, to help prevent uh, the spread and the risk? Yeah, so um, as of last Monday, our entire OBGYN faculty started rotating providers in and out so that we could try to not have many people out at the same time mm -hmm. um, if they were sick. And we did that not only for faculty, but also for residents or for fellows. Okay. We also looked at our staff to figure out who can help where. So for instance, pelvic health, um, their, their patients and surgeries tend to be more elective. Mm -hmm. And so they had capacity to help in places where it's not so elective, like GYN oncology. Yeah. Uh, people in our division faculty pushed for the non-elective surgery uh -huh. mandate to come out, which happened last week. Um, and we've tried really hard to pare down not just our surgeries, but also our outpatients. So OB is something that always has to go. Right. You know, it doesn't stop. So even... Um, thinking about how we do prenatal care, what patients are essential to come in for ultrasounds. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that has taken a lot of work to make sure patients are staying safe and we're seeing the highest risk patients, um, but also not bringing people in to risk ex exposure for us and for them for COVID. Understood. You know, we've been, as you said, weeks, we've been preparing for it from, from a women's health or from an obstetrical standpoint in particular. But the information that we've been getting about this disease has also been changing. Yeah. And we've got to be fluid enough to be able to pivot. Yeah. You know, and, changes and, super, super rapidly. Correct. And so when recommendations are coming out, we're basing it on what's currently available and to the best of our clinical abilities, right? Yeah. So the best information we have at the time. What can you share that's uh, something? Today is Monday, March 30th, Doctor's Day. Yay. Yay. What's, uh, what's something more current that, um, you know, that yeah. we want to share with our yeah. team? So I think there's been a lot of debate in the last um, several weeks as to whether vaginal delivery mm -hmm. and C-section qualified as aerosolizing procedures mm. because um, intensivists and people in other fields might not necessarily immediately lump those in with bronchoscopy, laryngoscopy, and those sorts of things. But any of us who have been in a delivery, whether as a physician or a patient or a partner, know that it is an intense process that can involve a lot of bodily fluids. That's true. So in thinking <laughs> about that, um, I have seen kind of nationally the guidelines move really in the direction of uh, treating 
uh, vaginal deliveries and C-sections as aerosolizing procedures, even if the patient is not intubated. That's not without some controversy nationally sure. and without some differing uh, recommendations nationally. But over the past, I would say, two weeks, that has become more prominent and so has been on our mind. And then last Thursday, a paper was published in the AJOG MFM, which is one of our uh, big journals, highlighting the experience out of Columbia University in New York. Mm -hmm. And in their experience, their first seven patients who were COVID positive, two of them were uh, asymptomatic, went through the screening process, had had no influenza-like illness, no fever, no problems at all. And then both of these women during the course of labor developed fever, which was attributed to chorioamnionitis, attributed mm -hmm. to the labor process. Mm -hmm. And they both actually went on to develop respiratory failure. Of course, shortness of breath is a common occurrence yeah. in the laboring process. So in one of the women, this was recognized when um, she was actually under general anesthesia during a C-section for postpartum hemorrhage and unable to be well oxygenated. That's when they realized that uh, she was in respiratory failure, likely related to COVID. And then another progressed to respiratory failure during her delivery. So both of those cases, the patients came in asymptomatically, passed screening, and went through um, the labor and delivery floor, unknown that they were, in fact, COVID positive. And in so doing, touched about 15 to 20 healthcare workers without adequate or appropriate PPE. So when that, uh, that paper calls for um, a national change in obstetric guidelines recommending that we use uh, N95's appropriate PP, not only for vaginal deliveries and C-sections for uh, PUIs or potential COVID patients, but also for all deliveries because of the risk of something like that happening of um, an asymptomatic patient presenting and delivering. So pretty quickly after getting that information, we started working on the idea of implementing the use of N95s for all for healthcare workers for all deliveries, regardless mm -hmm. of uh, whether a patient is symptomatic or not. And so a lot of hard work over the past, whatever that is, five days, mm -hmm. figuring out our um, supply status and who that would involve, and then went live today at noon with using N95s for all um, of our teammates who are involved in deliveries at the time of delivery out of that concern. So in five days, information comes out the, that says this is recommended and we as a system are instituting that yeah. knowing that some of the challenges were purely resource-based. Right. And so now not, and, and also evidence-based, right? I mean, we were yeah. going with the best evidence at the time now that we have more information, we are responding to that and we're going to work through whatever other challenges we need yeah. to to make so it So lots of information gathering about, you know, how many N95s that would require and how we would uh, get them and resource them. And then I think still some, you know, I think there are more more lessons to come in that regard. So sure. ongoing talks about how to um, improve that supply chain and whatnot. Well, and, and that's one issue that at least our organization has, has said, has said, nope, we're going to do this. This is important. This is the evidence supporting it, and we're going to make it work. And and let's let's hope as much planning as you can for a pandemic uh, that we're going to be able to manage it. I, I've been in some of the meetings where I know that uh, so many efforts, similarly for these past few weeks, so many efforts have been put into place to try to make sure we 
obtain as many resources as we humanly can uh, to kind of make sure we cover, cover the, the needs for our community. Have you found to the large part that our community uh, of, of obstetrical patients uh, have been receptive to that? Um, and how about our teammates? So I think there was some conflicting information in the beginning where um, some were saying that pregnant women were not at increased risk mm -hmm. for severe disease with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but as a group, we feel that the data is just so limited that we can't go on that kind of information. We have to assume that they're at risk just like any other severe respiratory illness, such as just the common flu. Mm -hmm. So just in all of our experience, we've seen people in ICU and ventilators because of respiratory illness. So when we started thinking about how to approach this with patients and even with other OBGYN providers, the thing about COVID is that you don't realize how serious it is until you actually start seeing it. And then it's too late to prepare for it. Right. So to get people um, to buy into how much we needed to prepare, how much we needed to really think about not bringing people into the office that really don't need to come at that particular time, that took some work. Mm. And so I think we've gotten to a place where we have come to consensus on who needs to be seen, who may be able to be seen later on. Mm -hmm. um, but there's probably going to be more work that needs to be done with that as we see our numbers increase. Well, this is a fluid uh, disease, uh, our, and our response to it has to be similarly fluid. And so it seems like the team has already adapted for some of the change that we've needed to put into place. And there may be, more likely than not, more changes that will have to occur as we get more information. Right. Um, you also mentioned something else, you know, I mean, so what about our pregnant teammates who are uh, working and taking care of our patients? Uh, you know, we've recently gotten into this community spread uh, situation here in Charlotte area or North Carolina as a whole. Um, maybe not so much in some of the rural areas, but definitely in the Charlotte metro area, we are, we, we've accepted that it is community spread. What is, what is the, the, yeah. the current recommendation for that? So I think to answer that question, I have to back up a bit and say, okay. what sure. do we know about coronavirus and pregnancy? And yeah. what are the risks to a pregnant woman? And so I think we have to put a huge disclaimer at the top of that, which is that we don't have a ton of data. Right. So, you know, right now, I think as of today, there's about 56 cases of pregnant women published in the literature. And mm. I know of a paper that's going to come out, which will increase that uh, number. And of those cases, while for the most part, pregnant women who got coronavirus did well, there were uh, three people who ended up in an ICU and one person who ended up um, on a ventilator and on ECMO and one stillbirth. So we have to take that data and then we have to um, also apply what we know about other similar viruses right. like the flu, uh -huh. um, SARS, and MERS, and also take what we know about uh, the immune system during pregnancy and other physiologic changes during pregnancy. All of which would suggest that while pregnant women are not at increased risk of contracting coronavirus, their chance of getting it is similar to anybody else that they uh, may likely be at increased risk if they do contract it. And those risks, I think, are different over time in the course of the pregnancy. So early in a pregnancy, there's risks associated with febrile illness that mm -hmm. is associated mm -hmm. with an increased risk of neural tube defect before the neural tube closes, which happens really early, like sure. six weeks. Yep. And then perhaps some associated risk of uh, miscarriage and things like that, of course, with um, both the flu and SARS, there's not a high association with 
um, miscarriage rates, but it's really early for us to have any, any data to be able to sure. say well about that. And then later in pregnancy, increased risks of uh, respiratory disease, severe respiratory complications. To the like, fetus? It, no, to the mother. Ah. So later in pregnancy, risks to the mother okay. of uh, respiratory illness like pneumonia uh -huh. and more serious respiratory complications like complete respiratory failure and then associated obstetric complications like preterm labor and yep. early delivery. So knowing that all of those things exist, when I put on my purely maternal fetal medicine hat looking at each individual patient, I think that uh, it's probably best for us to work to get our pregnant teammates away from patient-facing environments, at least while we have this early uh, asymptomatic spread. I know that um, at a minimum, I think we must prevent pregnant teammates from taking care of PUIs or known COVID mm -hmm. patients, mm -hmm. and I think we've been able to do that effectively. I think the bigger challenge comes when we're talking about uh, trying to get pregnant teammates away from patient-facing interactions altogether, because of course they are, pregnant teammates make up a pretty big chunk sure. of our and, workforce. And clinically they have a lot to give, so right. Right. you don't wanna... Yeah. So I think figuring that out has been a, a little bit challenging. I think that for each uh, department, division, everything has to look at what their resources are and right. what that looks like. I know that um, what that means for my group is that we've tried to get those uh, physicians away from patient-facing mm -hmm. um, positions. Mm -hmm. We know, of course, that as our if our workforce constraints change, if all of the faculty are out, that we may that may become less feasible. And then mm -hmm. I think we'll have to use um, you know other considerations like not letting them interact with PUIs or COVID yeah, patients. Yeah, I mean, but you know, again, I guess I go back to the fundamentals of preventative care, no matter what, right? A pregnant teammate or a provider or a patient, you still need to practice all the basic yes. preventive measures, right? In this yeah. case, if we know that there's community spread, if you were taking care of a uh, flu influenza patient, it doesn't mean you can't take care of them, just wear your pr protective yeah. equipment, take extra precautions yeah. to minimize risk. Absolutely. And so your ability to still provide right. care is there. So whether right. it's COVID or not, I mean, my sort of view on that would be it doesn't mean you can't it just means you need to be even more careful yeah and i will say that also everything's changing by the day That's so right. last week we went to everyone wearing masks Correct. with any patient interaction that decreases the risk to a pregnant teammate significantly right now we're going to wearing n95s for every aerosolizing procedure right. that decreases the risk to a pregnant right. teammate significantly and as i always say um, and I'm sure for those of you out there that don't know, Dr. Joy is also an, a maternal fetal medicine <laughs> specialist. I'm sure you would say the same thing. We also have to think about all the risks on both sides and yeah. all the benefits on both sides. Exactly. So there's economic risks to people yep. with not working. There's stress-related risks with not working. So in the end, I think it all becomes a very personalized decision for each pregnant person out uh, there in the world. 100% agree. And, and I think you bring the viewpoint into this that here's the current data that we know, and even from data from five days ago, we're adapting our behaviors. And five days from now, we may change it to something else based on what right. pops up. And what's really true, and this is true in all of medicine, is that at the end of the day, we have 
a bunch of different facts and then yeah. how a bunch of dis different experts interpret those facts. Yeah. So even from our, you know, governing societies like ACOG and the Society for Maternal and Fetal Medicine, the advice is divergent in uh, some places. Wow. And so yeah. you have to kind of take everything with a grain of and, salt. And I started this conversation by asking about fear and the perceptions that individuals have. And it, it is individualized. And the reality of it is we are at risk if we put ourselves at risk. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can minimize that risk, whether it's the delivery of care or even interactions with our yeah. family members or community. So I also always try to make the point that yeah. most pregnant women, if they get this disease, will experience it as a common cold. That's right. And so these severe complications we're talking about are only a small percentage of people. You said 56 and reported pregnant cases, cases thus far. Right. And one with a very severe complication. Sure. And then also, and this is a point that I myself have like a hard time getting my head around sometimes. We're talking about this disease as if if you encounter it, you will get it. But that's not the case. Right. The the R not or the reproductive number of this disease is somewhere between two and three, which means one person gets it they and without any any precautions, they're gonna give it to two to three people. That's the same as uh, for influenza in an mm -hmm. unimmunized population. And out of China, the rate of um, contraction among household contacts with no precautions, if a sick person with COVID was in the house, about 10% of the other family members got it. And that's without any of yeah, the precautions. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to hold that in your mind while also holding the scale of the pandemic and right. asymptomatic spread in your mind. And I think epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors can understand that exponential effect of one person getting it better than I can. But I try to remind myself of that when I'm on the unit giving yeah. care, that you know, following appropriate precautions, using um, the good um, technique that we use with hand hygiene and all of that, the risk of, of me getting it and taking it home is really very low. That's, that's, that's important to, to, for you to share and for our listeners to hear. And so what would you say is the uh, morale of our team, knowing that uh, these changes that we're making is, is difficult, but it's really intended for public health? Yeah, I think that um, as not just physicians, but um, APPs, staff in our offices, we're all used to taking care of patients and we're used to the way that we do that. And so to have to pull back from that, I think is a little bit hard for people to kind of come to terms with mm -hmm. and pull back in the sense of thinking about what is their risk of COVID versus what is their risk of having something wrong at a particular visit. Sure. So we see lots of women, most of the time they're fine. And sometimes we pick up an issue that needs to be addressed right away. But in this culture, the risk of COVID is outweighing those, you know, visits that we are routine. And so I think that some of us have had a hard time kind of uh, triaging what things are important and what things aren't right now. It doesn't mean that we're not going to address them. It just means that we can't do that right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think that overall the morale um, of the department has been actually really good because people have stepped up. People want to help each other. People are constantly searching the literature, bringing in things from societies, right. you know, emailing even Gene Woods uh. <laughs> about, about <laughs> things that we should be doing. So I, I do think that everybody's very engaged. Yeah. And I hope that that continues to, to go as, you know, things may worsen. But I think 
too that there's a lot of stress because yeah. it's always the stress of the unknown and and you know you see what's happening in New York and New Orleans and and so there's that unknown and the stress associated with that um, but even like teammates who they have a they're pregnant or they have a condition where they shouldn't be interfacing with patients right now mm -hmm. our faculty has been very good at um, supporting those people that's fantastic you, you see the the best in people come out in situations uh, of uh, like these and, and stressors as well. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. I think it's I think it's overall great. You know, we're seeing a lot of as often as the case of our teammates coming together and working together really well. Mm -hmm. I always have said about um, our unit in particular that you know, there's really no group of people I'd rather be with in a time of crisis. And um, you know, our nurses up there are just the best at taking care of emergency situations and coming together and working together really well. So I think that overall the morale is good. I think we all have our like individual anxieties and moments of <laughs> panic sure. and that's probably true in, in all of life right. as well. Right. But I think the other thing is for the most part it's business as usual. There are plenty of babies still being born under completely normal circumstances up there. So for the most part in a way I don't want to say we are lucky, but we we have a lot of continued uh, continued work to do that takes our minds off of of other things, doing what we do best. And you know what? But you should have that sense of comfort because you said weeks ago you started preparing. Yeah. And so weeks ago of time has gone into where you are at current state. Right. And even though you've had some adapting that has been modified based on uh, uh, publications or uh, governing body recommendations you're still more prepared than most. Yeah. At least that's what yeah. I think. I hope so. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I think um, we are. I, I think so too. All right, so final question. What is the advice you want to give to our listeners out there, especially if they are uh, a, a pregnant teammate, uh, a family member of a pregnant teammate, uh, a family member of someone who's pregnant, or just in general, one of our teammates who's trying to sort of cope with and understand the ramifications from a women's health perspective? So I think... Um, the first and most important advice I have is to take care of yourself the same way that you know we all should be doing every day mm -hmm. so that means something different for every person mm -hmm. but for me that means trying to eat at least one healthy thing a day <laughs> trying to do a little bit of movement every day trying to uh, connect to one person outside of work and outside of my home every day, which I don't connect in person. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Via text or otherwise. And um, to just get plenty of sleep. So those are my like four things I try to do to take care of myself. I think everybody has those things. So do those things. Then I think the biggest message, if I could shout it from the rooftops is, you know, stay home. So yeah. for those of us that don't have to be going out, stay home. Do, do, the, do the social distancing thing now so that we can um, end all these um, restrictions sooner. And then hand washing. And then I guess, you know, try to, try to keep in mind that this is all going to pass at some point and be, be a small part of a much bigger picture of our work and personal lives. I think uh, so that's my advice maybe I can play this recording back to myself when I need it <laughs> <laughs> well I think you you're if you're doing those top four things which I know you're already doing the latter three things you talked about <laughs> uh, you'll be taking care of yourself but you'll also be practicing and emulating 
what we expect everyone in our community to do so we can really flatten this curve and really get a handle on this. What advice would you give to our teammates, uh, our colleagues, um, and even regarding caring for themselves and or how to help care for their family member who might be pregnant uh, during this time? I would say the most important thing is to stay home. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that if we are not aggressive about keeping people at home that need to be at home, this will last for months. Mm -hmm. And so so that's the thing that I talk to, especially our staff about, um, that because people are worried. They're worried about their income. They're worried about getting hours, they're, and rightly so. Sure. But if we aren't aggressive now, then this could be prolonged, and peop more people could die, get sick, and so it's really important Propagate to Propagate the problem. Mm -hmm, stay home and, and just be aware. We have worked with um, Novant and other places around the state to try to be on the same page mm -hmm. with what kinds of recommendations we're putting out for the system. That being said, I think that Atrium is a leader, mm -hmm. you know, and so I think that um, we've been thinking about these things for weeks and weeks mm -hmm. and where some people may have started thinking about it more recently and we've been able to share guidelines with uh, prenatal care or guidelines around pregnant workers and, and things with our colleagues around the, the state. So it's very important to have that collaboration, especially as we go forward and we may have demand that that is too much for someone locally to handle. We might need, you know, to share uh, beds, you know, beds or ICUs sure. with other systems. So it's really important to have those relationships. Yeah, and I think the OBGYN community as a whole has is has close relationships, but this allows the collaboration to be even greater. Yes. Excellent. Well, Dr. Connors, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, and I appreciate your time and all the work you're doing with our teams to take care of our pregnant patients and teammates. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Temming, thank you very much. Yeah, for of course. With me. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, have a great day and continue delivering those babies. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this podcast of Get in the Know with Your CMO. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please join us again as we interview medical staff members, teammates, and other leaders 